Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me are my co-hosts, Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the revolutionary socialist political organisation, the Black Panther Party. And we have not one, but two special guests joining us today. Bill Fletcher Jr. is a racial justice, labour and international activist, and author of the books, They're Bankrupting Us, and 20 Other Myths About Unions, and Solidarity Divided. Thanks for joining us today, Bill. Glad to be on board. Also on the show, we have Trevor Beaulieu, lawyer and host of the podcast Champagne Sharks. Hi, Trevor. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. We want housing, we want clothing, we want education, we want justice, and we want peace. This is the basic platform. In case you never knew it or not, of all the things that you've heard in the press, of all the derogatory statements that's been made in the press about Brother Huey P. Newton and I, of all these derogatory statements to guide you away from seeing this basic platform that Huey was talking about for his own people. We have to learn to look through the white press. We have to learn to see what's going on. So let's get straight into it. Bill, can you introduce our audience to what the Black Panther Party was and how it formed? Well, it's it's an interesting question because the Panthers were um, the Panther Party that we know uh, was one of several Black Panther parties that were formed around the same time in the mid nineteen sixties. So, if you go back to uh, the like around 64, 65, you have the development of the um, so-called Black Power Wing of the Black Freedom Movement. And it was uh, moving in a more militant direction, starting to raise issues around self-determination um, and, and uh, revolution in some cases. Um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee began a project in Mississippi, and it was called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and their symbol was a Black Panther. Now, this was an electoral project, uh, but their symbol was the Black Panther. That symbol just sort of took on a life of its own. And around the United States, there were organizations that were set up that were called Black Panther parties. Um, And in California, Alone, there were, there were three, I believe. There was the Black Panther Party of Northern California. There was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which becomes the Panthers that we know of under Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. I believe that there was one in Southern California. There was one in New York. So over time, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which later drops the words for self-defense, comes to become the, uh, rises to become the main uh, force and eclipses the others. Some of them merge into it, others just simply disappear. The, uh, the Black Panther Party was uh, a revolutionary black nationalist organization. And, and by revolutionary nationalist, I mean that um, it was a, um, 
it, it not only was focused on African-Americans, but it was, um, it saw the, the fight for black freedom as necessitating a revolutionary transformation of the United States. And that distinguished it from other kinds of black nationalist organizations, including uh, back to Africa formations, or even those that uh, eventually gravitated towards um, President Richard Nixon in 1968-69 and his call for black capitalism. So they, uh, they, they took off like wildfire uh, beginning in late 66 and 1967. And um, there's a lot more I could say, but let me just stop there. I'm a, I wanted to ask um, Bill what the ideology of the Black Panther Party was, but also um, was there one uh, ideology of the Black Panthers? Because, I mean, it went through several... Um, permutations. I right. mean, there was a stage where uh, there was a lot of community um, building, but then there was a, a part where they were trying to get on an international stage and mm -hmm. uh, build with a lot of foreign um, organizations and movements. And then there was the time when uh, a lot of time was spent kind of courting a lot of uh, white liberals and celebrities and there's kind of a lot of different uh, aspects of the Black Panthers that different people seem to kind of gravitate toward you mm -hmm. know and mm -hmm. I'm very curious about about that like like if you think there was one coherent overall ideology or and if so what was it and if not what were the different ideologies it's a great question um so the best way to answer it is that the ideology of the Black Panther Party evolved uh, from 1966 through its end in the 1970s. I mentioned that it starts as a revolutionary black nationalist and pro-socialist organization. And that, uh, that description is very, very important for your listeners to get that this was an organization that uh, saw itself aligned with people around the world that were fighting imperialism and capitalism. They saw themselves at, uh, also as focusing on organizing African-Americans, but not to the exclusion of building relations with other oppressed people, and, and so, and including with whites which was very controversial um, because the black power movement had essentially established itself as drawing firm lines of distinction between African-American uh, formations and white formations. And in some cases, ignoring whites altogether. Uh, the Panthers basically felt that a revolutionary solution to the African-American situation was necessary, as I mentioned before. So that was a distinguishing feature. There were other organizations, like there was a group called the Revolutionary Action Movement that preceded the Panthers and contributed to the development of Panthers. There was a group that sprung up in the late 60s called the League of Revolutionary Black Workers that was also 
um, looking to build alliances with other oppressed peoples. But this was a distinguishing feature. And as a result, the Panthers caught a lot of hell from segments of the black nationalist movement that basically said, you shouldn't be dealing with whites. The Panther ideology then moves, it, it, it remains in favor of socialism, but it moves towards, let's call it a revolutionary internationalism where there was more of a downplaying of, uh, uh, of nationalism, black nationalism. And then Huey Newton, who was the Minister of Defense of the Panthers and the principal leader for uh, uh, much of its time, much of its history, articulated something he called revolutionary intercommunalism. And it was, it was uh, very controversial, but the basic idea was that increasingly capitalism was um, uh, eroding nation states and that what were what we that you couldn't talk about the traditional nation state you really had to talk about communities and um and communities of people and so he he was uh he was basically saying that um the the prior way of looking at the world the paradigm was no longer appropriate now it's interesting because newton in some ways um, preceded the basic thesis of Hart and Negri in their book Empire and those that have articulated the, essentially the death of nation states. And I'm not saying I agree with this, but I'm saying that that's, uh, that was uh, very prescient on his part ideologically. The problem, there were many problems though that go beyond ideology so, so that the so that was sort of the ideological current of the Panthers. But the Panthers were a real mixed bag in a lot of ways. And they contained within them people who became Marxist-Leninists, people that remained nationalists, uh, some that were some fusion of both of those. And this started to tear at the Panthers in addition to a whole set of internal problems that had to do with the paramilitary structure of the organization, um, the massive infiltration of the party by police agents and the disruption that they brought about. Bill, could you just um, elaborate on maybe the, the tension with the, in the party regarding self-defense is a party operating as a as a almost like a parallel military organization where sort of black men who had felt repressed for a long time would um, go around Oakland with guns and, and, and watch the police and watch the police when they were trying to arrest people and make sure that that the civil rights uh, of the um, Black people who were being um, arrested were, was being adhered to. Could right. you, yeah. Well, so a couple of things. One thing that is um, not recognized about the Panthers, and this may sound like a tangent, but I want to start here, is that the Panthers ended up being majority women. Mm. And women played a major role in the, the Panthers 
but there was there were incredible levels of sexism within the party uh, and hypermasculinity that was frequently tied to guns. Um, and so that's a look a little preface, and maybe we can come back to that later. Um, the Panthers did emerge the, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, uh, and I'll just call it the the Newton Seal uh, Panthers for now. They emerge, and part of what they were about was exactly what you said, that uh, you know, uh, police violence had to be stopped, and that African-Americans had a right to self-defense against police attacks and racist attacks, um, and and that this was not about turning the cheek. Now, the problem that the Panthers found themselves in is that they allowed the media to focus on the armed self-defense angle of the Panthers, which admittedly was very attractive, particularly to young men. Um, It it seemed like standing up, but it, it brought into the Panthers sometimes criminal elements, uh, other times people that were otherwise unreliable, uh, who, uh, who end up coming in and they fixate on the armed issue. Now, politically within the Panthers, this comes to be represented by Eldridge Cleaver, the Minister of Information. And um, Cleaver, ideologically, was all over the place. I think the best way to describe him would be uh, someone who was a... Um, a semi-anarchist um, at the time and, and a sort of uh, almost like a Bakunist uh, in his anarchism. And, and so, so Cleaver fixates on the issue of armed struggle and armed self-defense and, and attracts within the Panther Party those who are basically believing, have come to the conclusion that not only is armed self-defense necessary, but that the conditions need to be laid for the creation of an underground military apparatus. Um, And like urban guerrilla units. And that uh, eventually emerges as the Black Liberation Army, um, among other things. Now, what's interesting about this issue of, of armed self-defense is that armed self-defense has, has, throughout the history of Black America, always been an issue um, in the uh, period of Reconstruction. There, were, there, was the, there was armed resistance to the, the first variation of the KKK, um, and it was a combination of the use of U.S. military troops as well as organizations uh, that were called the Union Leagues in the South. Um, There was the African Blood Brotherhood of the teens and early 20s, most of which merges with the Communist Party, that was promoting self-defense and claimed that they were there in the streets in Tulsa in 1921 when when there was a white pogrom against the Black community 
and aircraft were used to bomb the black community. Um, there was, uh, there was um, Robert Williams in Monroe, North Carolina, who headed up an NAACP chapter and advocated armed self-defense against racist attacks. Um, and there was the very famous, but largely unknown outside of the black community, Deacons for Defense, which was a very quiet paramilitary organization in the South that protected civil rights activists. Now, so, so it wasn't like the Panthers started this issue of self-defense, um, but they picked up on it. Now, as opposed to groups like the Republic of New Africa, which was another revolutionary black nationalist organization that call, in this case called for a separate um, five states to turn into a black republic. The Panthers played up the issue of armed struggle and armed self-defense. The RNA did not, even though they practiced it. And, and so the, the, the FBI, Hoover, the director, J. Edgar Hoover uh, of the FBI, hated the Panthers, saw them as a, a vast threat, and began a process of infiltrating and disrupting the Panthers under this operation called COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program. And they, the, these agents, among other things, would provoke Panthers to engage in military or, or, or uh, um, armed actions that they should never have engaged in. But it becomes a way of setting people up to be arrested. So it's a long and complicated story. So where does the, the other members of the Panthers drift away from this sort of armed self-defense um, sort of policy? Because I think that a lot of the attraction of the Black Panthers for a lot of young Black people at the time was a sense of, um, you know, the martyrdom of uh, Martin Luther King, a, a, a character in, in the South who had basically helped to... Um, crush uh, the Jim Crow and, and sort of deserve, um racial segregation in, in the South, but had died at the hands of, you know, of someone who was violent. And uh, so it, it almost seemed like they, there was a contradiction between um, Martin Luther King's nonviolence and then the violence that was um, sort of put upon, upon him. And then there's another um, death as well, the death of Bobby Hutton, who was a young uh, Panther, who had gone with, with uh, Eldred Cleaver Correct. after the death of Martin Luther King, uh, in 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 a little bit of a rage and got into a gunfight with the police and it come out unarmed but was shot down by the police. So there's a, there's a deep sense of rage that I think is taking over a lot of young black people at the time. So how were the, the Panthers able to pass this this the, the clear attraction of young black people because of this rage, and trying to and try to move away from the the the, the self defense um, part of the, this. Well, they never moved away from self defense because that was a matter of principle. But what happened within the party was that there were programs that the party started for which it received very little um, recognition outside of the black community but were very, very important. And I'll give you um, two examples. 
the free breakfast programs for children mm. and uh, sickle cell anemia programs. The Panthers were probably the major force in elevating awareness in the United States of the problem of sickle cell anemia within Black America. And, and that is really significant. That, um, and, and they began testing programs, working with doctors around the country to make sure that uh, people were being tested for sickle cell anemia. Um, sickle cell anemia, for your, uh, for your um, listeners that may not be familiar with it, is a, um, an illness that goes directly back to our roots in Africa. The sickle cell trait is um, uh, something that genetically is very useful in preventing malaria, people getting malaria. But the problem is that it, uh, it can uh, become sickle cell anemia, which um, can ultimately kill somebody. So the Panthers um, promoted that the free breakfast programs. Kids were going to school hungry. And the Panthers set up free breakfast programs for the kids, you know, so that before they'd go to school, they'd have a good breakfast and it could go on. And because it's, it's been proven that children going to school hungry, it has an effect on their educational performance. So the Panthers were doing this, and these were called survival programs. So for a number of years, there was a coexistence between the survival programs and the, uh, the armed issue. The problem in my analysis is that there were elements within the Panthers, both police agents as well as genuine people, genuine uh, radicals, who started to believe that there was a contradiction between both of these. And also that it was necessary to set up a military arm, either because some people believed a revolution was imminent, or in other cases, people believing that an armed wing was gonna be important as a matter of self-defense. The police pl uh, pl uh, played on this contradiction and incited a split between uh, Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton. Now, Huey Newton, was, uh, I think, ultimately, they diagnosed him as bipolar. Um, he was brilliant, but he was subject to incredible emotional outbursts. Uh, and this got played upon, and it was a very famous exchange that was recorded by Eldridge Cleaver in 1971 when the split happened in the Panther Party, where... Uh, Huey Newton had been led to believe that Cleaver was doing something. It was basically a setup. And it resulted in a split in the Black Panther Party, where several chapters decided to align themselves with Cleaver and others uh, with Newton. Now, the, um, so the issue of self-defense was not, it never, it was never dropped. But the people, the majority of the party, which ended up siding with Newton, took the position that both of these things had to happen, and, um, but that we were in a stage where we had uh, the Panthers. I want to say we. I'm speaking, it's really third person. Um, that the Panthers needed to 
develop a, a more defined base within the community and not engaged in armed actions. Now, one final thing about this, uh, this whole thing, the, uh, this contradiction, is that the Panthers were set up, they had a strange, I mean, you can now look back on it, a sort of strange structure that was a combination of like a governmental structure and a political party structure and a military structure. So you had these titles, you had the chair, the chairman, right? And that was Bobby Seale. Okay, that's a political structure. But then you had minister of information, minister of defense. Well, ministries are governmental bodies. They're not political party bodies. Then in the local chapters, you would have the chapter chairs and then you'd have defense captains. Um, so you had this weird hybrid organization and you did not have an elected leadership. There was no, there was no Congress. There was no founding Congress, for example, of the Black Panther Party, nor an opportunity to, cho to choose new leaders. The leadership, there was a leadership central committee in the form of a central committee that went forward, but it wasn't like there was an opportunity for the party to renew itself, to renew its leaders. And this is something that led to serious problems. Uh, Bill, how do you, how did the Black Panther Party interact with other parties to the left and especially other civil rights groups? Is, is there any particular key interactions on that side of things? There were, there were different kinds of interactions, um, and some good and some terrible. Um, the Panthers, uh, in 19, I want to say 1969, um, hosted a conference, uh, which they called, uh, the United Front Against Fascism. And they set up a mass formation called the National Committee to Combat Fascism, which was supposed to be a, uh, a broad grouping of Panther supporters, but not Panthers um, around the country. Now by fascism, this was part of the problem in the Panthers analysis. The Panthers were experiencing high levels of repression from the state. And the Panthers made the mistake, which much of the left globally makes, of assuming that repression of their organizations or repressions of the left equals fascism, as opposed to understanding fascism as a certain kind of social phenomena with a particular kind of mass base and certain objectives vis-a-vis -vis the state. So the Panthers were they basically saw themselves in, as fighting fascism, but they were, they were fighting real repression. I mean, there was incredible repression. A lot of Panthers were killed. A lot of Panthers were jailed. There were police attacks all the time. So the Panthers reached out in 1970, um, in September 1970, they, uh, they called what was called the Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia to try to bridge gaps among uh, radical groups from uh, different 
populations, different demographics. Um, so, so you had that. You had uh, Panthers participating in some cities in the building of Black United Fronts. Um, you also had uh, major friction within the Black movement between the Panthers and the people that were described as cultural nationalists, people like uh, Ron Karenga out of Los Angeles, um, Amiri Baraka in, in Newark. And, and the cultural nationalists were, were people who basically saw black liberation uh, as pretty much an exclusive black experience and not, a, not necessitating any sort of dramatic social transformation of the United States, therefore not necessitating the building of alliances that crossed racial and ethnic boundaries. And so the Panthers were regularly at odds with the cultural nationalists and the police made use of those contradictions to um, kill and jail uh, Panthers and cultural nationalists. Wait, so what was uh, actually, the Panthers' uh, view of, say, white activists, you know, activists in the Students for a Democratic Society, activists who, who maybe would later join the Weather Undergrounds? What, what was the, the relationship between... Because if you have these cultural nationalists who, who see, I, I suppose, see um, the black experience as completely exclusive, but then you have groups like the Young Lords, you have mm -hmm. uh, Chinese groups, you have the, the Panthers right. view of a, sort of an internationalism that they have. You, know, right. you even have some, some people saying that, you know, you're Black Panthers, we're Yellow Panthers, things like that. So how, how, what were the Black, the Black Panthers' view of these, these other more uh, sort of diverse uh, groups that made up the, the left at the time? You just answered your own question. <laughs> um, so the, the Panthers inspired groups like the Young Lords, uh, the uh, White Panthers, um, uh, the um, Red Guard, and, and uh, a number of different formations that crossed different boundaries. The first uh, discussion of a Rainbow Coalition was in Chicago, and it was led by the late Fred Hampton, who was the uh, one of the most important Panther leaders um, at the time, and particularly given that Huey Newton was in jail, and I think Bobby Seale was in jail at the time. The, uh, and, and Fred Hampton was very well respected and was promoting, uh, you know, real internationalism, domestic internationalism, and crossing demographic borders. This was also, as I was raising earlier, what led to the Panthers being demonized by some elements of the Black Freedom Movement that basically took the position that we shouldn't really bother, we as Black folks, Black radicals, shouldn't really bother with whites and, and maybe interact with other people of color, but that that really wasn't the priority. It was this, almost a stage theory of we've got to get black people together, then we can work with others. And it was, um, it was a flawed strategy. 
Whereas what the Panthers were advocating was really pointing in the right direction that social transformation was going to necessitate crossing racial and ethnic boundaries. Um, so, Bill, how did the party promote itself and its message? Um, among other things, it promoted itself through an incredible newspaper, uh, the Black Panther newspaper. And um, it, was, uh, it was very popular. I think I read recently that it would sell like about 100,000 copies. Um, and, you know, uh, Panthers and Panther supporters. I was a Panther supporter. I was very involved as a student in different groups that were student groups that were pro-Panther. Um, I attended P uh, political education classes. I would sell the Black Panther newspaper. You know, people that were either in the Panthers or close to the Panthers were expected to sell the newspaper. And that became a, not just a means of fundraising, but of promoting them. The Panthers also received a lot of attention, and a, much of it bad, in the established media. So the, the main, so-called mainstream media would often paint the Panthers as a bunch of wild-eyed radicals that were only interested in armed struggle. Now, um, the Panthers would fall into traps. Keep in mind, you're dealing with people that were young. You know, when I, I became radicalized at the age of 13, at the age of 14, I found out about the Panthers, and by 15, was involved with student groups that were pro-Panther. We would refer to um, people that were in their upper 20s or around 30 as older. Right. These are these are the old folks. So we're talking about a very young group of people that uh, that 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 was uh, in the party. Many of them uh, had become radicalized quite young, like me. And uh, but they were not necessarily well trained and particularly in dealing with the media. The media can be very, very seductive. And you can end up saying things in, from the, in front of the media if you are not prepared. I'll give you an example. The, uh, David Hilliard, who was, uh, his title was chief of staff, went on a news program. I think it was on CBS. He was being interviewed one-on-one. -on -one, and he was asked a provocative question. I've forgotten exactly the question. But... He, his answer was something like, we will kill anybody that gets in the <laughs> way of black liberation, including Nixon, who was the president at the time. And it was like, I was watching this. I was watching this. And I said, oh, my God, what did he just do? Simon and, would not be happy. Well, you know <laughs> what? He was arrested. <laughs> yeah, because you can't threaten the president of the United States. Wow. That, that, was, that wasn't viewed as rhetoric. That was viewed as a threat. So, so, the, so you'd have 
things like that where, you know, he, for whatever reason, fell into a trap, was seduced by the media, uh, the media um, you know, much like the sirens that's, that try to seduce uh, Odysseus. And he, in, in this case, he crashes into the rocks. And, and so the, the problem then is that when panthers uh, are arrested um, and jailed, the resources of the party ended up going more and more to, to campaigns to free them, you know, uh, paying for uh, defense attorneys, publicity, et cetera. The, the, uh, the state understood this, and this became a very useful means of draining the resources of the organization. It was, it was bad enough, or it would have been bad enough, simply putting resources into the otherwise successful campaign to free Huey Newton. But when you have one, two, three, four, five many Panthers, either a national leadership or local leadership, jailed, that means that all of this money that could otherwise be going to breakfast programs, sickle cell programs, or whatever else, or just organizing, ends up going to that. Now, um, this leads to uh, several things, including fear. Um, that, you know, people, you know, the, 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 whoever asked before about the, the, the guns and attracting younger folks, well, the, the guns can attract younger folks until you start seeing a lot of people jailed or killed. And then people say, well, I'm not so sure this is what I signed up for. And so the Panthers end up becoming more isolated, respected, but isolated because people fear that being too close to them means that you too will become subject to repression. Um, and the Panthers didn't deal well with this. Now, when the split happened, after the split, Newton makes this decision, which I think was completely wrong, not entirely irrational, but completely wrong, to close down all Panther chapters and bring Panthers to Oakland with the idea of essentially uh, building socialism in one city. That, that basically they were going to concentrate their forces in Oakland and prove that the Panthers were in a position to build a real base area and could exert political power. Bobby Seale ran for mayor. Uh, and, uh, and that they could... They, would set that as an example, and then the Panthers could go forth and multiply. Um, it was a very bad idea. Not Bobby Steele running for mayor, although at the time I didn't, my ideas on uh, electoral politics were very ultra left. But, um, but the idea of closing down all these chapters, it's like once they're closed down, it's really hard to rebuild. And um, so they were closed down, and then ultimately uh, Newton has to leave the country again, and uh, Elaine Brown becomes the chair of the party, uh, and the party ultimately disintegrates. 
Um, uh, something so- I was curious about was the um, you were talking about how they had no founding Congress um, mm-hmm. at the in the Black Panthers and not a real way of uh, refreshing and renewing leadership, but like a real mechanism for that. And what I was wondering about is that's something that describes problems, I guess, in the continuity from um, in time, like from year to year, but. Across organizations, what was that continuity like? Like, 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 like not the past, present, and future continuity of like the movement of time, but the pres- the continuity of like some type of way. I mean, I hate to use the analogy like uh, McDonald's or something, but you know, it's something we you can make sure that the principles are consistent from organization to organization. Like, what did uh, the Panthers have as far as mechanisms to ensure that, or was that a problem, like, where different um, Panthers organizations would end up morphing into something very different than what, um, say, the one in Oakland was, or what the one in another part of America was, and if that led to conflicts? Yeah, especially because the one in New York seemed to be much more sort of um, BLA type, uh, sort of a, a more underground and more aggressive faction than the one even in Oakland, right? Oh, yeah. Well, no, New York became the site of the, um, the probably the largest group within the Panthers that sided with Cleaver um, and went in the direction of armed struggle. Um, and their, their theory was, um, uh, there was a term for it, but it was basically two-level struggle, above ground and underground. Um, I'm not sure that I understand the question, though. I mean, there was the, the problem in the Panthers was, or one of the problems was precisely that you, you had, the leadership came from the top. But at the same time, the different chapters were very autonomous. Um, in, I, in, I, I, I guess to work. clarify the question, I just yeah. clarify the question. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, did they have a way? I wish I had better metaphor. I don't want to say quality control because that makes it sound corporate. But um, no, they didn't. They they did. They had. So in 1967. Um, uh, and early 68, I think it was, they, um, because, no, it was actually 68, 69, um, there was this rapid influx of people into the Panthers. And that included police agents, and it included the police, in some cases, setting up Panther chapters. Um, And uh, I remember Charlotte, North Carolina, there, were, there was a Black Panther chapter that was set up and, and a relative of mine told me that it had happened. And then all of a sudden I read in a Panther paper that it wasn't a legitimate chapter, that it had never been approved and that it was probably set up by the cops or by thugs. So, um, so there was a process of purging that went on and the Panthers began removing people 
who were alleged to be agents. Now, in these purges, there were people that were agents that were removed. But it also turns out that some of the people that were doing the purges were agents. Oh, and wow. they, they were eliminating political opponents within the party uh, or people that were not deemed um, reliable. So, um, so you know, and, and the, the basis upon which people would be uh, eliminated or purged, uh, the allegations um, and that, and it wasn't like there was uh, some sort of court so in terms of quality control, there wasn't. The, the purges were an attempt uh, at the top, from the top, to try to deal with what was in fact a very real problem, a very real problem. But you didn't have a democratic internal functioning, even though they talked about democratic centralism, there wasn't a real democratic functioning. And there was, uh, there was the failure to, to um, choose leadership in an in a internally democratic way. And therefore, you end up having a situation where there was a lot of suspicion among, within the Panther Party of different people and their intents. A friend of mine was thrown out of the party um, and was accused of being an agent. And... Um, and it was was he an agent? Or? As far as I, I know, know he wasn't. <laughs> no, I mean, as far as I know, he wasn't. Um, he had actually uh, feminist politics. And, um, and I think that part of why he was purged was that he was raising some genuine issues around um, sexism within the party. Bill, if I could jump in here, um, that was actually my next question that I wanted to circle back to the role of women within the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. um, I know that women were much more kind of central to the more socialist programs that uh, the, the party enacted, um, especially around Free Breakfast for Children and the Intercommunal Youth Institute in Oakland. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to kind of the question of sexism um, when women were so integral to these such important aspects of the party and why those things aren't really well known about the Black Panther Party. Well, let me start with the second part, why they're not well known. And why they're not well known is because of the way history is frequently told. Right. And, and, and so... Among other things, it's frequently told by men. And secondly, it's frequently told in a way that glamorizes certain things. Um, the uh, women in the Panther Party were the ones that got things done, to be honest. Um, and as it is in most movements. Um, and they, they were not just running breakfast programs they were running like everything. Um, they were the, the ones that got the work done at various levels. They were the top women leaders um, ended up being Elaine Brown, Erica Huggins, 
to some extent, Kathleen Cleaver. Um, those were the three main, at the, at the most well-known national leaders. But there were women throughout the entire organization that were playing central roles. Now, what happens in the Panthers, uh, there's several things that happen. One is the, um, how can I put it? So there was blatant sexism including various forms of sexual harassment and demands for sex as, as uh, someone's alleged revolutionary duty. There was, uh, but there was also um, a, a, the, the glamorization of the gun in the party can be directly tied to a hyper-masculinist approach even though women would have guns so the so 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 the 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 party verbally supported equality it would have in its uh photographs and pictures women who were armed but there was a tendency uh within the party towards thuggery male thuggery and um and intimidation. And so that was uh, like another part of the way that this played out. Now there was, there was an additional element, which is true in a lot of liberation movements, which was the, the demand for gender justice was frequently treated as a, uh, a secondary demand or a demand that would necessitate awaiting the final victory. And, and so that became a way of subordinating very important struggles within the party. Uh, that said, there was no mass desertion of women from the party. Um, it wasn't like women said, no, the hell with this. There was, uh, they were the ones that kept the party together. And I would, I would argue uh, that part of what happened at the end was that when Elaine Brown took over from Huey Newton, when Huey was in exile, one of the things that she was up against was precisely the fact that she was a woman and that there were elements within the party, and leaving aside any issues and problems with her, right? Just putting that all to the side, there were elements within the party that did not like the idea of a woman being in charge, and they worked to undermine her. We say Huey was in exile. Can you uh, elaborate on that? Um, there were charges that were brought against him, and I'm trying to remember... Um, what the charges were. Um, and he left and went to Cuba. Um, and I can't remember what the charges were. Um, and so, so while he was away, Elaine took over. And 
she was she was in charge i think until the end and then huey returns oh i found i found what the charges were it says that um there were charges of killing a 17 year old uh prostitute yeah well see at that point by that point i had Really, I, I disengaged from involvement with the Panthers by 72. The aftermath of the split in 71 was very ugly. And people were expected to choose sides. And the, um, whether you were a Panther or a Panther supporter, and things got very weird. And then when the Black Liberation Army was formed or announced itself, things became very complicated um, because of the armed actions that the BLA engaged in. Um, so I, I pulled back. And, um, and, and actually, to tell you the truth, when the party dissolved, I didn't even know it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Bill, could you tell us a little bit about the, the role the FBI played in the repression of the party and the kind of relationship between uh, the FBI and the Black Panther Party? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the, the FBI hated the Panthers. Mm -hmm. um, and the, 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 the COINTELPRO operation, which was not used just against the Panthers, and that's a misunderstanding that many people have, it was originally designed to destroy the U.S. Communist Party, Communist Party USA. And then it subsequently was used against Native American groups, Latino groups, women's groups, anti-war groups, and black freedom groups. Um, COINTELPRO was a process of total destabilization. That's the best way to, to, to describe it. So it included everything from the killing and jailing of Panthers to um, infiltration, uh, disruption, rumor mongering, um, and what, what's called black propaganda. And black propaganda is not about the propaganda of black people. It's a term of art that refers to uh, the production of something that is made to look like it comes from a particular group uh, or organization, and in fact does not. So uh, an example of this was something that I encountered uh, in, I think it was 1970. I went to the Panther office in Mount Vernon, New York, and there was a, something that was called the Black Panther coloring book. And I, it, was, it was sitting there in the office. And I'm looking through it, and it was very well done. And, it was, um, and I'm looking at I'm looking at some of the pictures, and this is supposed to be a coloring book for kids. Keep that in mind, right? <laughs> and there's pictures of people shooting pigs. And the pigs was the term for police. And the way that they would portray it is they'd have a pig in a police uniform. 
So they, they, you know, like sitting on a horse or something. So this showed people, kids shooting cops. And I looked at this and I said, wow. Um, you know, right, what did they of... have um, the pigs? I mean, the pigs were represented in the Panther newspaper as, as right. police officers. Often, I think. Yes, yes. But, but the, the Panther newspaper never showed anyone shooting cops or shooting pigs. Right. But in the, in the coloring book, it did. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh and, wow. And so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wow, this is like really heavy. And I consider myself a supporter of the Panthers. And I, I was very uncomfortable with this. Years later, I found out the Panthers never produced that. Hmm. It was produced by the FBI as part of the COINTELPRO operation. And that what happened was they were able to insert it into the Panthers and get it around the chapters, leading the chapters to believe that this was a legitimate thing from the party. <laughs> But it was I think it was also believed that um, the, the New York office of the Panthers sent Huey some death threats, but they might have been part of the COINTELPRO operation Precisely. as well. But that's exactly what the FBI would do. They would, and, and that's where the issue of, there's some background noise. Sounds like someone's cracking some papers. Oh, sorry, it's me. Yeah, it might want to just mute your mic. Um, so it, 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 it's why the issue of rumors becomes very important in any kind of political movement. Um, what, the, what the FBI was very, very successful at was spreading really derogatory rumors um, about the, about the uh, party. And people would believe them. Um, this, in fact, contributed to this could, in fact, contributed to the death of a major actress um, who you could look up, Jean something, who uh, c committed suicide. And the uh, uh, basically rumors had been she had been someone that supported leftists and rumors had been circulated about her that contributed to her taking her own life. Yeah, this it was, was a Jean Jean Seberg. Uh, that's French, right, Seberg. French act, French actress. That's she right. was in uh, a lot of French New Wave stuff. Right, right. So, <laughs> oh, wow. uh, oh yeah. So, so one of the things, one of the important lessons here, is that we we on the left have to be very very careful about the things that we circulate because rumors can be incredibly destructive because people will want to uh, frequently believe the worst that can be said about someone, even someone that's well-respected. And instead of taking the, the point of view of seeking truth from facts and actually investigating uh, things. Um, to me, I, I just... I, you've gone through the, um, the repression by the FBI in, in great detail, but... For, for the life of me, I don't really know why the FBI felt that the Panthers were so important. Especially, like, I, I heard that J. Edgar Hoover said that they were the most dangerous group to, to uh, national security in the United States at the time. That doesn't seem completely right to me. Why do you think the, the, the U.S. government was so scared of the Panthers? 
because the Panthers were very popular. Um, and we were in a, uh, an era of crisis. And the Black Freedom Movement and other freedom movements were emerging, becoming very uh, threatening to the status quo. The status quo was feeling very vulnerable. And, you know, it's easy now to look back and say, well, wait a minute, how could they have been afraid of, you know, X number of Panthers? Uh, you can't look at it that way. You have to mm -hmm. situate yourself at the moment in terms of what was going on and what people were feeling. And, and then you add on to that um, the ideological element of the paranoia and deep anti-communism and racism mm -hmm. of J. Edgar Hoover. So, you know, because J. Edgar Hoover, you know, was, uh, you know, was one who was behind trying to trash and drive insane Martin Luther King. Um, the FBI was very involved in trying to uh, destroy Malcolm X and probably was involved in the ultimate assassination of Ma Malcolm X in some way. So you've got to look at it in the context of what was going on at the time. And do you think that contributes to the the death of uh, Fred Hampton? Fred Hampton, who was uh, oh, yeah. an emerging uh, Panther leader who right. had these great speeches. Uh, right. He said things like, I, I am a revolutionary to, to the packed crowds. Yeah. And then he's, he's slain in, in this way. That, and it, it, it's clear that, that, that he was murdered by the but, the police. That's right. But, and, but is that yes, isn't that fascism? Or I mean, you no. said this wasn't fascism. It's not fascism. No. no, it's not fascism at all. It's the way democratic capitalism works. See, one of the one of the problems that we've got to be clear on is that that under capitalism, there's various forms in which the state can take, and uh, the and and within authoritarian capitalism. There are various forms, um, coup regimes, um, monarchists, um, any, there's any number of forms. Fascism is a social movement that when, uh, that's rooted mainly in the middle strata um, and that when it takes over, it doesn't simply take over, it seeks the destruction of all elements of the democratic capitalist state. It, it's not, and so it's not simply repression. Capitalism, mm -hmm. democratic capitalism, is incredibly repressive. If you look at the history of the United States, for instance, you'll see time and again massive repression against the labor movement, against the African-American movement, Chicano movement, the, the mere action of repression does not define fascism. It is the way the democratic capitalism operates. And, um, and so, but when you are the victim of it, it is very easy to feel like, wait, this is fascist, right? You know, when you're arrested, when people are killed, when your friends are killed, when you're, you're uh, set up on trumped up charges, you know, when the judicial system doesn't seem to work, it's very easy to conclude we're in fascism. The problem is that 
and and this is something that the Panthers encountered in a number of other leftists. They may have been repressed, but if regular people are not feeling that repression, then you've got a problem. You got a big problem. Uh, Phil, could you tell us a little bit about the the drop in membership uh, during its life cycle of the Black Panther Party and kind of the, I suppose, what what ultimately led to the sort of dissolving of the party uh, later on? Well, I think I covered some of that. Um, and, and so just in summary, at the, the withdrawal of Panther chapters and, and, and Newton repositioning people in Oakland, I think laid the foundation for the eventual dissolution of the party. The, um, the, the lack of democratic instruments within the party to address very real concerns was itself a, an additional con- uh, contribution. The issue of sexism was another factor. Um, the split itself in 1971 contributes to the decline because there was, a, there was in, the, in the words of many, uh, an attitude of a plague on both houses. Um, the people basically felt like, this is just crazy. I'm not getting involved in that. But the other thing is that the Black Freedom Movement, like many of the other progressive movements, were by that point, mid-1970s, on a downhill slide. And uh, for a variety of different reasons. And so that all is a contributing factor. Am I right in thinking it was 82 that it was ultimately dissolved? What, I'm just wondering what, what the party was sort of like at I that point. I don't know. All right. Like I said, I don't know. I, did, I literally, and I, I've remained politically active since I was 15, I mm-hmm. literally do not remember when the Panthers dissolved. Right. Do you, do you think history sort of moved past the Panthers? Because, I mean... In, in 68, you have um, like an incredible amount of economic and social segregation and blight that's happening. And, and you have the, the riots, uh, 50 riots after Martin Luther King was killed. But do you think that the Nixon administration, through concessions, was able to just basically make the, the, the party seem antiquated? Let's make this the last question because I'm going to actually have to get back to some other tasks. Yep. Um, and it's actually a good question to end on. The, um, I, would, I would suggest that the, the Panthers lacked an overall strategy for revolutionary change in the United States, that if you want to look at the Black Freedom Movement, the Black Freedom Movement between 1966 and 1968, there is this strategic plateau that the Black Freedom Movement finds itself on, in part because of the great victories that have been won. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, the beginning of processes of desegregation, et cetera. That's all taking place. Great victories. Question was then, what next? And this was a question that haunted Martin Luther King for his final two years of life. And it also 
was contributing to the split in the black freedom movement between sort of the king wing and uh, the black power wing. Like, what's next? Now, King, uh, many of us focus too much on King's tactics and not appreciating his overall strategy. King came to the conclusion that what was necessary was to use the so-called civil rights movement um, as a jumping-off point for the building of a broader coalition for social change in the United States and social justice. So in the final two years of King's life, global politics becomes critically important and economic justice, which had always been important for King, becomes even more important. So in 1967, King speaks out on the Vietnam War. Um, King had always been involved in supporting unions, trade unions, and continued to do so and was ultimately killed while he was supporting the sanitation workers in Memphis. Um, that, and, and, and he developed the idea of the Poor People's Campaign, you know, bringing together people of, of different ethnic racial groups in this massive movement of poor people. The problem, when King is killed, the leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the leadership of the wing of the movement that he was in was not really prepared strategically or, or vision-wise to go forward with that. And, and that's what I mean, that there was a sort of plateau. It, it was the assumption that in many respects, we had won our major victories and history was not going to take us back. People may never have said that, but that's essentially what they acted out. The black power element within the black freedom movement was a very diverse uh, force that included those that were asserting the need to raise up black pride, uh, community control, and other things, and was pointing out the weaknesses of efforts at desegregation. Um, and that the black power movement and the, um, the civil rights forces, both end up getting divided in part by the response of corporate America and the Nixon administration, where concessions are made uh, at multiple levels. Nixon articulates the whole theory of black capitalism. There's other things that are developed. And so that hampers the movement. The movement overall starts to decline, not just the black freedom movement, and then you have on top of that, of course, repression. Repression not only of the Panthers, but of other black activists. So it's not so much that history superseded the Panthers. The Panthers were crushed, in effect. But the other thing was that the Panthers, when I said before, the Panthers lacked an overall strategy. This is really important. That it, you, know, you can talk all you want about revolution and socialism, uh, just like I talk about going to Alpha Centauri. I believe, right, that humanity needs to go to Mars and to Alpha Centauri and, uh, and Proxima Centauri, right? Um, but it, it, what I think and what I'm saying is irrelevant if I don't have a strategy. 
And, uh, and, and so one of the issues is that then you had this problem within the Panthers of well, what is the strategy we're following? So for some people, the survival programs were the strategy. And in that sense, it became, and there was an element of kind of the social democratic direction, you know, sort of building up progressive institutions within the context of democratic capitalism and then eventually we'll win. Whereas the, and the alternative within the Panthers was a, uh, the major alternative was the armed struggle. We've got to get prepared, time to get the gun. Now, I don't mean that all Panthers fell in one or the other but, uh, category, but I am saying that those were the two prominent strategic directions. And that what you didn't have, in my humble opinion, was a good Marxist understanding of strategy and what it would mean, including who needed to be organized and how, but also how you, what kind of organization you build and the role of people as opposed to great leaders. Because when you have a situation where you don't have a democratic means of revitalizing your leadership, you are in fact creating and reinforcing the notion that great leaders make history, um, sort of like North Korea, right? And, the, and, the, and the, the idea of a red monarchy almost, that you can basically, you, you know, you just have these great leaders and they are great. We're not quite sure why, but we just know that they're great and that no one can really replace them. And, and I think that that was uh, the death knell even if the other conditions had um, not been in existence. Um, um, I just want to add something real quick that's not really a question, but um, that people might find interesting is um, Jean C. Berg, the French actress that Bill was mentioning before, she was in Jean-Luc Godard's uh, Breathless and the French New Wave movies. There's actually a movie on her life coming out this week on Amazon Prime. It's, uh, uh, Kristen Stewart is uh, oh. playing Gene Seberg. <laughs> oh, Twilight. there you go. Yeah. So, Breathless uh, is such an annoying movie. Like, the cuts in that movie. It's me <laughs> sick. Uh, I'm sure the, the Black Panthers felt the same way. Um, <laughs> well, the tragedy of her death was was just that. It was, it was but, but you see, that happened to other people, too. Um, you know, like I mentioned, the friend of mine who was purged from the Panthers, you know, he was to be called a police agent can be a death sentence. But even if it's not literally a death sentence, it um, it can lead to isolation. And um, and there were people that were treated very badly. There were people that. Um, may have been tortured within the Panther Party because uh, they had been believed to have been police agents. Um, and so you have to be especially careful. I, I, um, I ran across somebody a number of years ago at a demonstration. I used to run an organization called Trans-Africa Forum. And in, this was in the early 2000s. And uh, one of the things I did at one point was to sign on to a letter criticizing then Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe for his repression 
uh, that was going on in Zimbabwe. And uh, there were many people in the uh, Black Freedom Movement that didn't agree with me, that, that viewed uh, Mugabe as a hero, et cetera, because of what happened in the National Liberation War. And my point of view was, you know, he was a great hero during the National Liberation War, and then he became corrupt and repressive. So um, there were, you know, there were people that started calling me everything but a child of God. And, uh, and you know, they, they would say, uh, they would suggest that I was an agent. And uh, so I ran across this, this woman and at a demonstration, and I was introduced by a mutual friend. And she said, oh, you're Bill Fletcher. I said, yeah. She said, yeah, we used to call you brother Double O Soul. <laughs> right? And she, she starts oh chuckling, God. right? And I said, I looked at her. I was very, you know, very straight faced. And I said, you think that's funny, don't you? Yeah. I said, well, so let's play this out. You call me brother Double O Soul. And then I call you a Mugabe chump. And the next thing, we're shooting each other. And she said, that would never happen. I said, do you remember Cointelpro? And she became very silent. And I walked away. Mm. I made my point. And, and this is, it's funny because I was I just writing something about, I'm rethinking Facebook. Because this may sound like a tangent, but there's a problem on Facebook that reminds me a lot of what happened in the Panther Party. That there's a way that people can engage with one another that is very cavalier, where people can make all kinds of allegations and suggest things about people's intent that's really nasty. And the problem is that these things can take on a life of their own. And that's what happens with rumors, that they can take on a life of their own, that, you know, you hear that person X was an agent. You tell a friend of yours and so on and so forth. So when person X shows up, the presumption is that they're an agent. And then what do you do about an agent? Well, there's different things you can do about an agent. And, and that's where it gets really, really dirty. The FBI knew this. They did the same thing in the Communist Party. And so, you know, like you spread rumors, you know, particularly you got it. This is like we're now in 2020. Um, and the, 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 what was seen at the time as the gay rights movement um, was, was sort of just emerging. So to say, to accuse somebody, and I use that word purposefully, of being, uh, a gay or a lesbian. Um, that was like pretty serious. Even in organizations like the Panthers that ostensibly supported gay liberation. Um, it, was, it, was, it was very serious and it could have dramatic consequences. And, uh, and, and so allegations would be, could be made about people in a very offhand way, or people just simply repeating allegations. Um, you know, I, I was once a union organizer. I've spent most of my life in the labor movement. And there was a institution I represented once, the workers at the institution. 
And it was a mainly Latino institution. And as a union staff person, I'd show up there to check with them and negotiate and everything. And every time I would come in, every damn time I'd come in, somebody would come up to me with a rumor. Oh, Bill, we heard that such and such is literally sleeping with the director. You know, or Bill, we heard that the union is getting ready to sign a contract that releases all of our rights, right? I mean, all kinds of, and so every, I mean, every time I'd visit that institution, every time I'd have to spend some time clarifying truth and false. So at some point I said, you know what? I said, what's the Spanish word for gossip? I said, chisme. I said, good. Our slogan is going to be no chisme. Right. Wait, no Bill, Bill, w- one last question, because, I mean, this is starting to sound like it's quite there's a lot of delirium around this this movement. And, and, and it seems like that's, that's really what COINTELPRO was able to do. Do, do you think that it, it it actually turned someone you like Q.P. Newton? He's a, he's a smart guy. I went to Merritt College. He was a good Marxist. You know, he uh, was, uh, was very intelligent. He has an organizational sense. Um, do you think it turned someone like that actually crazy? No, I think he was already. Uh, 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 can, can I piggyback? No, 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 no let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. Um, because that's, that's a very, very important question. Okay. Um, so let me finish my first point, and then I'm going to go to this, the Huey thing. My point about the gossip is a point that every one of your listeners that's an activist needs to take and write down. No chisme. No gossip. Seek truth from facts. Investigate. Um, as Mao Zedong used to say all the time, no investigation, no right to speak, right? And, and the problem in the Panthers is that even though the Panthers would quote Mao on that, they wouldn't practice it. And the rumor mill becomes very destructive. Now, the, the issue of did that turn Huey Newton or, or send him over the deep end. There's enough evidence that there was something really wrong with Huey. I don't know whether there was ever a, an official diagnosis of him, but there are people that have, it has been suggested that he was at least bipolar. Um, and I think when I look at the actions, I think that that's a reasonable assumption. Now, um, but, the, but the point is that there are conditions in which people are operating that can accentuate all of this. You know, it's like that saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, is, that helps one understand the dynamics in the Panther Party, that you had people in there who had varying problems, um, I don't mean everybody, but I mean, it's like in any social movement. You had people that had varying problems, but those problems could be accentuated by the larger conditions. Um, the, the, the intense repression and fear when you don't know who you can trust at any one moment, that certainly becomes a catalyst to make things even worse. And I think that that is what, in fact, happened in the party to many people, many good people. 
I think went over the deep end. Uh, what I want to piggyback on uh, with the Huey Newton question was also Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, similar, I want to ask a similar question about Eldridge Cleaver. It seemed like his addition created a lot of uh, fractures too. And I wanted Absolutely. to know if you thought that Eldridge Cleaver was somebody who went in it with good intent, but um, something went wrong, or if he went in it cynically and and like, like what was it about his addition? Was he like same same question? Did he have some kind of pre-existing problem that was exacerbated by involvement, or was it more of a cynical, conscious, uh, divisive energy that he brought? No, I think I think he may very well have had something wrong. But I, as I was saying in the, earlier in the interview, I think that the main aspect was that he was an anarchist. We couldn't see it at the time. That his, um, his view of the world was shaped by anarchism and by a particular variation on anarchism. Um, there was a level of purism. Um, you know, he was constantly looking for the pure revolutionary state the revolutionary state without any contradictions. Um, and that was sort of the path to paradise. Um, and the, the idea of, of um, armed propaganda, as it was called, that, uh, that armed units of dedicated cadre could kick off a revolutionary movement. Uh, by their exemplary action. It was, it was Bakunist. And, um, and so I, I think that he was at one point a serious revolutionary. But what's interesting is what happens to him later, that he flips from being an anarchist to being a Republican. And he, um, it's like he just went whoosh, right smack across the spectrum to the side of the, to the right, um, right wing. And, uh, you know, he didn't, he, he did not have his bearings. Uh, and I think he just completely lost it. Now, he may have lost his mind at the end. I don't know. But he certainly lost his bearings. And and became a different person. Yeah, I know he even was welcomed to the Reagan White House as a guest yes. one time, which right. is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so. so that that's us at the hour and a half mark, guys. So I'm probably going to have to uh, probably come to a close there. Um, yes. Bill, uh, Trevor, thank you guys so much for joining us. Bill, especially, thank you so much for answering all our questions. That really was uh, so informative. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Really, thank, thank you. you. That was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah thanks so much. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Bill, and thank you guys for having me too. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Trevor. I know I've been bothering you since I started this podcast. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks, <laughs> it hasn't been bothering us. Getting, getting Bill on here as well, man. I well, know. Thank such, you. Send me such, a link when it's uh, when this is ready. Absolutely, will do. It's such an honor to have you on, Bill. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Um, okay. And Trevor, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I hope you uh, had as much fun as we did uh, bombarding Bill with all those questions. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, well, from uh, from myself, Simon, from Toby, Vaughn, from uh, from our from our guest uh, Trevor Mill. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll have a new episode uh, in the near future. Goodbye.
Take care. Take care.